1: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: So it's early July 2023, and we in East Sussex currently have a hosepipe ban in place. We were warned by authorities, including the Meteorological Office, the UK's national weather service, to expect droughts and temperatures of 40 degrees Celsius. Well, it's currently raining. And that's not to say that those baking temperatures won't come, but right now, the drizzle is falling, it's all quite chilly, and I've got a jumper on. So much so English, you might say, but don't be fooled, the sound you can hear, well, that's not the rain. No, instead, it's the noise of my frying pan, currently cooking sausages for our dinner. We're having them with cauliflower and broccoli cheese in case you're curious and what's all this got to do with english folklore well firstly the sausages in my pan are of a special variety they come from this week's county and are deeply delicious but the noble sausage itself came to england with the romans the first recorded mention of them in writing found in the british isles is from around 400 AD. Like a lot of things we English consider to be traditional, like bangers and mash, or steak and kidney pie, or even fish and chips, scratch a little below the surface and you will find things aren't what they initially appear to be. Even the English word, sausage, only came into use during the 1400s via the French saucisse. From the Latin, salsica, meaning seasoned with salt. As for my Cumberland sausages, they aren't so much salty as peppery and delicious and hot on the tongue. And recipes for them have existed since almost as long as the English have had a word for sausage, but more on that later. For now, gather round the campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast.
0: sat on a tree,
2: down, a down, hey, down, a down, they were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take with a down, dairy, 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 down, down? Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Three Ravens podcast. Season
3: two, episode one. We're back. We
2: are. And in case you didn't already know, my name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined as ever by partner in crime and all dark arts award-winning poet, playwright shakespeare scholar and witch eleanor conlon
3: i've really missed recording episodes but we needed the break because we have been busy
2: yes we did our big participatory drama project up in suffolk and now we're back If you've already listened to episode zero for the series, you'll already know that we're reordering the show a little bit. So we'll be talking about reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and correspondence and social media stuff at the ends of episodes moving forward. But we do still need to say a big thank you to our new supporters on Patreon.
3: Yes, thank you to Elaine, Ed and Carrie, Susan, Catherine and Benjamin. All hail
2: Elaine, King of Patreon. All
3: hail Ed and Carrie, Kings of Patreon. All
2: hail Susan, King of Patreon. All hail
3: Catherine, King of Patreon all
2: hail benjamin king of patreon
3: of course if you can please consider joining our patreon for just three dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast for all our episodes ad free all of our stories as text versions bonus content including exclusive episodes and our three ravens newsletter which comes out on the first of every month and contains the major English folk customs for the month, Mm -hmm. information about Celtic trees of the month, zodiac signs, a unique tarot spread and a magic spell for the month.
2: Yes, so the July edition was published on Saturday and it is jam-packed with goodies. And
3: big news, we need to announce the winners of the first ever Three Ravens card design contest. We
2: absolutely do and the first thing to say is thank you so much to everyone who entered. We loved all all the entries and we've put all the runners up and winners onto social media so do please pop by facebook and instagram to take a look at them because they are amazing They
3: are amazing we are thrilled with all of the entries but our three winners are first Georgia, with her lovely watercolour entry, The Crowhurst Yew.
2: Secondly, Rain, with her amazing painting, One Cockstride from the Witch's Pool, inspired by our story from episode two, The Restless Witch of Sand Hill.
3: Then, last but not least, our final winner is Rachel, from Rachel Creates, with her fantastic painting, Baba Yaga's House.
2: Congratulations to Georgia, Rain and Rachel, and thanks again to everyone who entered.
3: But wait! What's that coming over the hill?
2: Is it a monster?
3: It's not a monster. It's another card contest. <laughs> yes. So. Rattling its car wheels towards <laughs> us.
2: We're currently getting on uh, with getting those winning entries from the first contest printed and for sale through our online shop at ravenspodcast.com slash shop. But we're looking ahead and although it might seem a bit mad, there's method to our madness.
3: Yes so every year we really struggle to find nice folky Christmas cards and though we're not religious we love midwinter, yuletide, all the winter festivals and love to send cards to our friends and family.
2: So the plan now is for the second Three Ravens card design contest please send us your original artwork inspired by the folklore of wintertime. I'm really
3: excited about this theme yeah, and it will work exactly the same way. We'll collect entries across the second series judge them all at the end and then get the cards printed and up for sale so people can send them through to friends and family this christmas as
2: ever please send those entries through as jpegs to three Podcast at gmail.com
3: right then martin let's get cracking What weird stuff happens today? (laughs)
2: Well, this episode is being released on Monday the 10th of July. And although there isn't a special Saints Day or festival today, there's a biggie tomorrow. And that is St. Benedict's Day. When you
3: say St. Benedict, are we talking Benedictine monasteries, liqueur Benedictine? That's
2: right, we absolutely are. So Benedict of Nursia... He's a pretty amazing figure in the early church, known today as the father of Western monasticism. He was born in Italy in 480 AD. He was the son of a nobleman and had an amazing education for his day. But after leaving home, he met a monk on the road and resigned all claims to earthly goods going to live as a hermit in a cave for about three years. Went
3: off grid. Good for Benedict. Well, it really
2: was, because after living in the wilderness and considering life and how to live it and becoming known as a local wise man, the abbot of the local monastery died, so Benedict was invited to take his place. Only, once he did, he brought in this strict code, which you can still read today. It's called The Rule of St Benedict. It's a book and it was Benedict who, amongst other things, came up with the structured set of four prayers monks engage in while they work throughout the day. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Eleanor. Can you remember what the four prayers are for Benedictine monks?
3: Uh, yes, I can. There is lords in the morning. Yes. Vespers is certainly in the evening. Yeah. Uh, there's one called Compline. I don't remember which part yeah. of the day. Compline,
2: that's just before happens. bed. And there's a fourth one.
3: And the fourth one. Well. Well, I said I could remember the fourth, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> it's really boringly named
2: Midday Prayer. Oh, really? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Come so, on, guys. Easy to Latin forget. Latin name? <laughs> I know, right? But anyway, well done. This whole structure for the day. So Lords and then Midday Prayer, Vespers, then Compline just before you tuck yourself up to go for sleepies. That. And some of Benedict's other tenets, they're all really interesting, but they were not popular with the monks of the day. And several attempts were made on his life from within his own monastery.
3: Scandalous. <laughs> naughty Although I've got to say, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because honestly, when you think of a medieval Renaissance monk, yep. you think of those four prayers. You do. I love the idea that they hated it.
2: Yeah, they didn't like getting up praying like, come on let no, us sleep Ben well, I
3: think Lord's in the morning was really like three in the morning yeah yeah it was early pretty morning. early yeah yeah
2: so in terms of trying to kill him they, they tried to poison his wine uh, they tried to poison his bread. Um, and the most famous instance of this is when he was given poisoned bread to eat, but a raven flew down from the sky and carried the poisoned bread away.
3: Well, that's ravens for you, isn't it? We live to serve. <laughs> and so what do we do to mark St Benedict's day, well, the, uh, the survivor monk? <laughs> so weirdly, there isn't actually
2: anything in particular.
3: Ugh, one of those. Yeah,
2: because you're meant to be living according to the Benedictine rules every day if you're a monk and benedictine monasteries sprung up all over europe 12 in benedict's lifetime many more after his death but there is a pretty interesting and good prayer to St Benedict that I'll pop up on the blog if people are interested, with a picture of his Saint's Medal, which is also really cool. It shows the raven that carried off the poisoned bread, saving Benedict's life.
3: Oh, how lovely. Yeah.
2: So, Eleanor, should I stop the county criers lacing food and drink with poisons and have them ring us into Cumberland? Yes,
3: please. I did think my cup of tea tasted a bit funny, actually. (laughs) Cursed criers. Oh,
2: yay! Oh, yay! Cumberland is England's most Northwesterly County. As always, there's a map showing its precise location in England on the Three Ravens Podcast.com blog. It's bordered by Scotland to the north, Northumberland to the northeast, County Durham to the east, Westmoreland to the southeast, Lancashire to the south, and the Irish Sea to the west.
3: Wow, it's another one surrounded by lots of other counties.
2: It is, and really interestingly, from the mid 1970s until just this year, so about half a century, the County of Cumberland was absorbed into the larger administrative. Area of Cumbria. Why? Well, The government at Westminster, basically.
3: Oh, I see. So down in the south, people making decisions that have sweeping impacts on people in the north.
2: It's a tale as old as time. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, as you might expect, the county has undergone some changes across its history. In ancient times, it used to be ruled by the Hen Ogleth, the old northerners who hailed from Wales, with the old north as it was stretching from the west coast of Wales right up to the Pictish territories in the Scottish Highlands and way down the east coast towards York. It's a
3: huge area. And so is that sort of the basis of what then became the old Kingdom of Northumbria? Yeah, kind of. And one of the most
2: interesting archaeological finds in the county, the King Moor Ring, which dates from the 9th century, it's at the British Museum now, has a near-identical partner ring called the Bramham Moor Ring, both of which... Uh, inscribed with a common ancient script. People think they're protection rings, with one of the terms engraved into them alluding to the power to stop wounds from bleeding. But nobody really knows. The language is lost.
3: Now, that is an example of a genuinely helpful magic move. yeah I mean, slip that on before you're about to prepare dinner and all those middle-class <laughs> avocado-related injuries are just a thing of the past. It's almost
2: as if you speak from experience
3: no comment (laughs) so J.R.R.
2: Tolkien Studied both rings, and it's generally accepted that they're the inspiration for Sauron's ring in the Middle-earth stories. But anyway, the Brahma Moor ring was found in Yorkshire, the King Moor ring in Cumberland, and Anglo-Saxon Northumbria existed from around 650 AD when the two territories around there from the Hen unified. So that was the Kingdom of Deira and the Kingdom of Bernicia. So that kind of lines up, although the first recorded use of the term Cumberland appears in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle of 945.
3: So the name comes from Welsh?
2: Yes, it does. The Welsh name for Wales is Cymru, and you can hear it. Cymru, Cumberland... Cumbria, they're all related terms. And
3: do we know what that means? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It means compatriots. Ah. So like allies, fellow countrymen, that sort of thing. That's really
3: nice. Yeah, So it's like the the friends. Yeah, that's it. We're the gang. We're the crew. (laughs) The gang. Yeah, that's it. Uh,
2: The county motto of Cumberland is perfero, which is Latin, meaning... I endure.
3: I endure. Yeah. Sounds a bit ominous. It does. I'm going to take it from that, that Cumberland has had a bit of a tricky time of it over the years. Well, kind of. Um, I mean,
2: right from the 11th century in the Doomsday Book, Cumberland's borders have been chopped and changed by various kings, including bits of the county being claimed by Northumbria and then Yorkshire and parts of Lancashire also being parts of Cumberland for a while. But the borders didn't actually change that much from the 13th century up until, like, 1974. For a couple of centuries, though, you had a lot of border disputes with Scotland, with our old pal William Rufus invading Scotland, as we discussed way back in episode six, when we were talking about Hampshire. Oh,
3: yeah, William Rufus's... Hey, guys, I've got this idea for a united kingdom.
2: (laughs) So he claimed Carlisle, which was a bit of his good kinging before the whole squirrel (laughs) episode. Um, And then Carlisle was regained by David I of Scotland, which was then reclaimed by Henry II of England in his war with Malcolm IV of Scotland and so on and so forth. And all that led ultimately to the border between England and Scotland being made permanent by the Treaty of York in 1237.
3: OK, So, what's Cumberland's county town? Well,
2: it's Carlisle, um, the city that people were fighting over for so long, which I confess I knew very little about before I did my research. Eleanor, do you know anything about Carlisle?
3: N- no, because I... would <laughs> I thought it was in Scotland. So absolutely not. And to any Scottish listeners, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Well, I confess
2: to ignorance here as well in that I knew nothing about Cumberland before preparing for this episode. And my golly goodness, does it have a lot of folklore. Way too much for one episode. But one very cool thing about Carlisle is it's located at the highest point on the highest mountain in England. Wow. Yeah. So the mountain is called Scaffle Pike and it stands over 3,200 feet. So
3: the county town is on top of a mountain. Yeah.
2: That's wild. I know. It's so cool, isn't it? There's got to be a giant sleeping under it <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Definitely. Speaking of which, there is a place in Cumberland called... The Giant's Grave, which is linked to the Arthurian knight Yvain, but I'm not going to open that whole can of worms. As previously discussed, once you pop open the Arthur myths, it's pretty difficult to get the lid back down. Maybe
3: that could be something for Patreon. Ooh,
2: maybe. I mean, there's definitely scope for doing a Yvain episode, or Owain if you want to say his name that way. But anyhow, for now, let's just say Cumberland it's a hilly place. It <laughs> contains part of the Pennine Hills, also known as the Pennine Chain, which are a range of uplands famously known as the backbone of
3: England. Oh, that's where they are. Yeah, that's a right. Wondered. Also, Backbone of England is a great name.
2: It is. And in case you're unfamiliar, the Pennines run from near the Scottish border right down to the Peak District in Derbyshire and Cheshire. They're mainly limestone, so naturally they're full of caves and potholes, some of which stretch over 100 metres deep.
3: lots of dark places (laughs) for creepy things to come out of. Yeah,
2: quite right. And another cool fact, the Pennine Way is England's oldest long-distance footpath running for... Check this, 268 Whoa. miles. That's 429 kilometres in new money.
3: I wonder how long that takes to do that walk.
2: Well, I can tell you that the world record for doing it for a man, two days and ten hours, and then female record is just over three days.
3: Wow! I know,
2: right? That's pretty, so impressive. Amazing, Congratulations
3: to those walkers. yep Now I've got to say, I'm, I'm going to bring up the, <laughs>
2: <laughs> the elephant yeah. in the room. Not that yes. it's an elephant. Yeah, Not go that on. It's
3: an elephant in it. the room. One of the major things I know Cumberland is famous for is the Cumberland sausage. Yep. So it might sound silly, but it's. Known nationwide, you can pick up a Cumberland sausage in any supermarket. I've got to ask, what's so special about it?
2: Okay, well, it's not just a nationwide thing. It's international.
3: Really? Yeah.
2: So like Parma ham and feta cheese, the Cumberland sausage has a protected status in the European Union. It's a
3: protected sausage. It is a
2: protected sausage. Oh, that is
3: (laughs) marvellous.
2: So if you've never seen one, a traditional Cumberland sausage is a type of sausage that's been famous for like over 500 years. Nobody quite knows how it came about. There are theories that the main Cumberland port of Whitehaven on the west coast had an influx of new ingredients coming from naval trade that prompted someone to invent it but the idea is that the traditional cumberland sausage is meant to be really long when it curls inwards so it looks like a spiral i'll put some pictures up on the blog at three ravens usually we're talking about a sausage of 20 centimeters long sometimes they stretch up to 50 centimeters long half a meter of that's sausage
3: quite an intimidating amount of sausage doesn't <laughs> mean that's not a single person's (laughs) Well, you'd
2: hope not. You'd have to have quite the appetite, (laughs) wouldn't you? Um, And aside from being long and spiralled, they're also famous for being highly seasoned. The main other famous sausage in England is the Lincolnshire sausage, which is flavoured with herbs, whereas the Cumberland sausage is dominated by pepper, usually several kinds of pepper, with other ingredients also including thyme, nutmeg, ginger, and sometimes molasses, even rum in some old recipes. Wow, so
3: it's spicy, it packs a bit of a punch. Oh
2: yeah, Uh, it's maybe my favourite kind of sausage, but yeah, a lot of quite boring supermarkets in England don't sell them as spirals anymore, and the flavour of them is pretty mild compared to the proper ones. And aside from its sausage, Cumberland is probably most famous in general for containing part of the Lake District, which also spills into Westmoreland and Lancashire.
3: That's your kind of place, what with the Lake Poets.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, If you're not a Romanticism nerd like me, the Lake District is famous for the Lake Poets, including William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and Robert Southey. And the region is also associated with other famous English writers, including Beatrix Potter, who lived in Cumbria for most of her life. It's a stunning place, the Lake District, full of amazing waterfalls and rivers, rolling hills and forested areas. It is just like strikingly gorgeous.
3: And what about castles? I'm imagining there must be quite a few. <laughs> what with the Scottish and Welsh borders nearby? Well,
2: in terms of the romantics, you've got Egremont Castle. Wordsworth wrote a poem about that one, but I mean let's not muck about. One of the most famous defensive structures in all of England is in Cumberland, specially designed to keep Scots at bay. Now
3: you said defensive structure, not castles. So I'm guessing we're talking Hadrian's Wall. We
2: absolutely are.
3: Such a good wall. It's
2: incredible. Uh, I can't imagine there are many people out there in the world who haven't heard of Hadrian's Wall. But just as a reminder, it's 80 miles long. It runs through Cumberland and Northumberland, cutting right across England's border with Scotland. It dates from 127 AD. It was built by the Romans as a dividing line between the northernmost part of the Roman Empire and the barbarian Caledonian tribes to the north. It remains one of Britain's most visited attractions, and although the wall itself is now pretty degraded from what it was, originally it was huge huge about 15 feet tall with a series of forts along its length some of which you can still visit the ruins of it's kind of one of those wonders of the classical world that scrambles the brain really
3: but i'm i'm right in saying it wasn't just a military thing was it hadrian's wall
2: no that's right so archaeologists have discovered that there's loads of evidence at hadrian's wall of it becoming this really important trading center so although there were tribes to the north a bit like stonehenge i guess drew people from all over the ancient world to it to trade so did hadrian's wall and there are remnants there of objects and records of people from the scottish tribes as well as rome north africa eastern europe and of intermarriages between them all and human life going on in that kind of mingly messy same sort of way it always has
3: almost like people have always crossed winged and in small boats <laughs> Sounds totally unlikely, doesn't it? (laughs) Anyway, so Egremont Castle, Hadrian's Wall. There's got to be more than that.
2: There are, for sure. The biggest and the best is carlisle castle carlisle itself was first occupied by the romans building hadrian's wall or at least that's as far as the evidence we have and there are other roman ruins in cumberland including the raven glass roman bathhouse near moncaster castle you
3: must go i know
2: coolest name ever and hard not roman fort but carlisle castle specifically was established by william rufus with various kings including king john Edward I and latterly Henry VIII adding significantly to it over time.
3: Was Mary Queen of Scots? Did she live there? Yeah, she was was in prison there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's been sieged loads of times, Carlisle Castle, right through the civil wars, which is very late. I mean, the age of castle warfare was long over by the English civil wars. It's kind of an amazing place. As is Carlisle Cathedral, which dates from 1133. And despite it being England's second smallest cathedral... It's incredibly beautiful. Finished in what's known as the flowing, decorated, gothic style.
3: Oh, that's- Oh, fashion goals for me. I want to be finished in the flowing, <laughs> decorated, gothic
2: style. Well, I think maybe you are. <laughs> um, now, you definitely like Carlisle Cathedral. Again, I'll put pictures on the blog. It has this amazing blue ceiling covered with gold stars. It's gorgeous. And like all English counties, there are stunning ruined abbeys and priories in Cumberland, including Furness Abbey, Lanacost Priory and the Wetherall Priory Gatehouse. Sadly, the gatehouse is the only bit that survives, but... But that's from the 15th century. It's also quite beautiful.
3: Why doesn't any more survive, Martin?
2: Well, um, I guess this is the point in the podcast where we have a kind of mandatory moment of shaking our fists in the air and spitting at the name of Henry VIII.
0: Really
3: <laughs> 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 so, talk to me about folklore. What are the tales?
2: Okay, well, there's lots. I can't do it all, but let's start with some creatures. Excellent. So, Lake Windermere stretches between Cumberland, Westmoreland, and Lancashire. It's enormous. It firstly has its own Loch Ness monster-type creature living it. It's known as Nessie. So that's pretty Aww. cool. Uh, but maybe even cooler. Apparently, all around the edges of Lake Windermere, you'll find curious creatures called Tizzy wizzies.
3: Tizzy wizzies. Yes, tizzy wizzies. Do you think that's where Bertrix Potter got the idea for Mrs. Tiggy Winkle? It's possibly. Tiggy Winkle the sounds case. a bit like tizzy wizzies. It does, <laughs> doesn't
2: it? So tizzy wizzies are supposed to have the bodies of hedgehogs,
3: oh, yeah. the
2: tails of squirrels, Wait. and the wings of bees. It-
3: it all sounds quite cute until you actually think about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't much like the idea of a hedgehog
2: flying at me. No. If you've ever encountered a tizzy wizzy, then do let us know via at gmail.com. The thing I most want to know about them is how big they
3: are yeah and if everything's in proportion because the oh, wings yeah. of bees are quite a lot smaller than the tails of squirrels
2: yeah, that's true yeah
3: <laughs> or is it gigantic <laughs> bee wings i know right oh,
2: also before we leave lake windermere there's also a famous ghost there called the crier of claif
3: It's another great name does that ghost have a bell it rings to make announcements not, much not like her. not
2: Christ. quite no so there's a viewing platform on the banks of lake windermere a kind of Stone Castle Keep, and it said that a monk from Furness Abbey fell in love with a local woman who refused his advances. So he went down to the shore and, as you do, wailed himself to death. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, I feel terribly sad for him. I
2: know, right?
3: But also, wow, what a drama queen! I know,
2: that? drama llama monk, yeah, for sure.
3: <laughs> so the story I goes. They put that on his gravestone. <laughs> What Brother drama. Bertram wailed himself to death. <laughs> yeah,
2: I know, right? So the story goes, people sometimes see the ghost of this monk, the crier of clave, at the viewing platform, and you can hear his whales carrying across the waters of the lake to this day. <laughs> oh
3: guy. Okay. So what else? Give me more. All
2: right, well, there are lots of elf and fairy legends in Cumberland. For example, Bassenthwaite Lake and Harknot Pass are meant to be fairy country. People say that Elver Hill, near Bassenthwaite Lake, is also a fairy mound, and if you knock three times you'll gain entry. While at Harknot Pass it's said Everling, the fairy king of all England holds his court there.
3: Outstanding. I
2: know, right? Um, There are actually loads of fairy or elf barrows or hows, as they're called in the region, including the Elver Hills, Elver Hill, Elver Plain, the Elverstone Stone Circle. There's an Elf Hall at Hallthwaite's Ella Barrow at Pennington. I mean, Cumberland is thick with legends of little people.
3: There must be something to it. I you know. know. that many legends. There must
2: be something in the water of Cumberland, for sure, because I've got a list of long as my arm of just the curious monsters and cryptids from the county.
3: Lovely. Keep them coming, right. please. We love a monster, don't we? <laughs>
2: okay, so another famous creature from the area is the Beast of Cumbria.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What kind of a a beast
2: is the Beast of Cumbria? Well, you'll be happy to hear. It's another one to add to our beast list. Um, This one is another giant cat. It's been seen over 40 times. And right now, there's a Facebook group where people are tracking sightings.
3: (laughs) to join that right now (laughs) yeah i know
2: right there's a black shuck style dog as well that roams around the area it's called the caplethwaite although you should probably speak more about that in your Westmoreland episode yes the caplethwaite
3: puts its paws over my borders (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah that's
2: right and this kind of amazing other story happened in cumberland early 19th century the area around ennerdale was terrorized and this is a completely true story by a different giant black dog called The Gert dog of Ennerdale.
3: Gert being great. Yeah, that's right. uh...
2: So, this great dog killed, and this is.
3: (laughs) We don't know if that was great in size or it was just a really nice dog. People did not like it. (laughs) So, so there
2: are all these records. Over 300 sheep were killed in a year across the fells of Cumberland by this massive dog. Loads of attempts were made to hunt it down. Nobody knows where it came from. And it said it used to drain the blood from the sheep it killed. And that one of the scariest things about it is it never made a sound.
3: A silent dog. I know. It sounds like the perfect pet. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I imagine it would still be smelly. And also you've got to have a constant supply of sheep to be bunging into its room.
3: Yeah, we would be more trouble than it was worth, probably. <laughs>
2: I also like the way that in my mind I said, well, oh, it would have to have its own room. Well, and just...
3: obviously. <laughs> you can't have a thing that size in your bedroom.
2: So as I said, this is a genuine, real, for sure, realsies creature because it was eventually shot and killed by John Steele, a resident of Asby, with a dog weighing over 8 cents.
3: whoa that's a big boy
2: (laughs) and then its taxidermied skin was kept at the huttons museum at keswick for over 50 years Oh,
3: they they reliably know it was that large yeah
2: that's right it eventually fell to pieces so they got Mm. rid of it but there you go now in terms of blood drinking beasties specifically near to renwick there's the legend of the vampire of Croglin Grange.
3: (laughs) That's a gothic nightmare.
2: So this was a creature with flaming red eyes that allegedly haunted the woods around Croglin Hall and attacked a young woman, sucking her blood, but the creature was allegedly shot in the leg one night, then hunted down to a crypt in a nearby churchyard, found at rest during the daylight hours, and burned.
3: I really wish people wouldn't always burn vampires. I know. Surely, you can find a way of transporting them. in caves big lockpots or something just so we could understand them better.
2: Well, it's not unlikely that people have tried to do just that but you know the fact that they aren't around to talk about it suggests maybe it isn't that easy. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> so now linking back to episode 4 on the Sockburn worm from Durham, Cumberland also has its own raft of worm legends. They're generally called hagworms in Cumberland and legends say they could fly and grew large enough to hunt and eat Birds.
3: Oh, no. Nope. I know, right? The
2: best place to have seen them is said to be Hagswood near Arnside in the southern section of the county. But I don't much fancy the idea of flying snake beasts, do
3: you? I'll take a tizzy whizzy any day over flying <laughs> snake beasts. Normally, um, when we talk about places on the podcast, we say, oh, must visit. Yeah. But I'm putting Hagswood near Arnside on my must never visit <laughs> <laughs> list.
2: Unfortunately, we're not done with nasty flying oh, no. things. <laughs> because, again, in Rennick, in the Valley, there is the legend of a basilisk. Oh,
3: we don't get basilisks that often, do we? Yes, yeah,
2: so this one seems as much a cockatrice as a basilisk. And to be fair, the two creatures are kind of synonymous in many medieval texts.
3: Yeah, so basilisks are normally snakes, aren't they? And obviously our, our cockatrice is a, a much more of a hybrid yeah. creature, but they, they have in common the turning to stone with their gaze. Well,
2: the curious thing is that for centuries, the two creatures were just one creature creature and then they were split apart in the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh
3: really? So they weren't actually uh, medieval um, categorizations at
2: all? No, Same thing. Wow. So so they've developed their own mythologies since the publishing of that's, D&D that's so first edition. I know right? Anyhow so the uh, Rennick basilisk appeared when the old Rennick church was being torn down we're talking again about a creature with a cockerel's head, a bat's wings and a snake's tail. Allegedly the result of a toad mating with a chicken with basilisks and cockatrices both as you've said having the power to turn people to stone some people say that's with a look others say it's with a bite either way so the story goes this basilisk terrorized Rennick, maybe in the 16th century maybe in the 17th but we know that a local man called john Tallentire killed it with a Rowan Wood staff. And
3: well, I think a statue should be erected to him. Good work, John. The last thing anyone needs is a basilisk <laughs> on the loose.
2: So, um, to move away from monsters, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the main characters in Cumberland Folklore, Adam Bell. Have
3: you ever heard of Adam Bell? Uh, no, uh, my mind went to Alexander Graham Bell. Um, <laughs> but I assume no relation. Ahoy,
2: he says, answering the telephone. Um, well, he's... Adam Bell, this is a kind of Robin Hood of the North kind of figure.
3: Bringing telecoms to the port. (laughs) (laughs) So there's
2: a ballad about Adam Bell from the 16th century. He's referred to in Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. Very briefly, it's like a glancing reference. But the legend has Adam living in Inglewood Forest with his merry men. He did daring do and and so on but then he was captured and he was challenged with shooting an apple off his son's head in a kind of Mm -hmm. william tell style from 120 paces and if he managed to do it then he'd earn his freedom all told he made the shot but I'm kind of waiting for the version of this story where the legendary bowman misses, shoots his son, and just goes on a mad, murderous rampage as a result.
3: Did you just spoil your own
2: story for this week? <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, speaking of which, we'd probably get on. So, for our story this week, it's called Long Meg and Her Daughters. I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> Once there were 77 great stone circles in Cumberland. Some still stand, such as the stones of Souther Fell where ghostly armies march by night. There's the Castlerig Stones, second largest in all of England, and the Mayburg Henge, left half-buried in the earth since old John Lesh dug one out to build his house and went mad within a week. At Eamont Bridge, there's the Round Table, said to be the site of King Arthur's final battle, and the Swinside Stones, where the folk of Sunkenkirk tried to raise their church, only, well, the devil kept pulling it down. But no stone circle in Cumbria has half the fame as Long Meg and her daughters, and though others might fall, she never will. Not until the curse is broken. Few dare so much as touch Long Meg. Some brave soul once set about trying to carve his name in her, but no sooner had his blade touched the stone than it sprang with blood and a storm blew in overhead. Poor fool must not have known of the hex laid upon her "'by the wizard Michael Scott, "'he who froze old Meg and all her kin that bright Sabbath day. "'For she was famous in her time, Meg of Meldon, "'the flame-haired daughter of William Fenwick, "'known to all nearby as the Heron Lord. "'He was the master of Harrington Hall and wanted a son.' He never got one, and once Meg grew tall, she was married off, as was the way in those times. So tall was she that some thought her ugly and others called her a giant, but she mothered seven girls well enough, much to her husband's shame and rage. Like Meg's father, her husband wanted a male heir, and with no boys forthcoming, he took to drink. It was no matter to Meg, who, out of nowhere, found and raised a pup to keep her company. A black mongrel, it grew and grew, and it said that when the hound barked, the rain would start falling, and when it growled, the clouds would turn grey up above. One day, so it said, ripe with drink, Meg's husband fell from his horse and passed on. So Meg went back to her father, seeking money, and by then the old man was on his deathbed, and old William Fenwick wouldn't give her a bean, no matter how loud the dog growled, and when he died, at a great flash of lightning, some second cousin became the heron lord, and that was that. So it was that Meg went from village to village, from Penrith to Armothwaite, Winfell to Kirkeswald, raging until the air turned black with her words about the ways of menfolk. Sure enough, her seven daughters followed, and, like the Fenwicks from time immemorial, those girls had magic in the blood. They knew the power of the Stones of Cumbria, studied the hedges and the druids' ancient rites, and so many of the women who heard of Long Meg's calls dropped their stitching, left their bread half-baked, and walked away with the butter unchurned. It's said over a hundred women followed Meg out into the Pennine Hills. Word was, they lived there together in the caves, hunting and fishing, farming and trading with the folk of Windskill, Solkeld, and Glassenby. They never went to church and never spoke to menfolk at all. And people came to them for help. Cures for the sick, help for the lame, spells for those who were most in need. All one had to do was walk into the wilderness, and there the black dog would find them, leading them to a quiet place where a sister would meet them to do business. Of course, words spread soon enough, not least of the dances Long Meg led on the wilds in all weathers. They would travel to the stones across Cumbria for their rites. Some said there were sacrifices, fires lit, and wailing songs that would last from dawn until dark. All that noise carried on the wind. Well, it drew Michael Scott, and in him, Long Meg met her match. You see, Scott was a wizard, no bones about it. He'd trained as a priest at Oxford, learning Latin and Greek. Then he went to Paris, learned Hebrew, went to Bologna, learned Italian, and he trained in Arabic at Toledo, unlocking the wisdoms of the East and West. He travelled on right into Africa, living for a time with the Tuareg people of the Sahara he solved the secrets of the rainbow wrote on astrology alchemy physiognomy and the occult helping fibonacci with his book on mathematics which is dedicated to him if you check when word reached him of long meg he was in norway where he was showing the same trick he'd done in france and spain having feasts served by spirits he'd summoned out of the shadows of the room And by then he'd learned of the manner in which he himself would die, which the spirits told him would be by a stone striking his skull. So, day and night, Michael Scott wore a metal cap under his hood, never removing it and thinking to live forever. So it was that Michael Scott sailed to Cumberland, drawn by the rumours of Long Meg and though he spoke to the lord bishop of carlisle it seemed none of the priests of the county would dare head out into the wilds to see meg all were afraid having seen the storms above her dances heard her music on the wind and learned of the many who were willing to follow her seemingly to hell and back he was a brave man, Michael Scott, for as much as he was a wizard, he was also flesh and blood. And though he ventured over the foothills by Thack Moor and through Hartside Pass, everywhere he went a great black dog followed him, watching from not far off. The beast, which, some said, grew as big as a horse, brought with it gales and lightning and floods, and when Michael Scott battled the weather, it only grew worse, the hound mocking his steps. Yet, Michael Scott was cunning too, and so he laid a trap. For that year, Midsummer fell on a Sabbath day, and from studying the stars, the old wizard knew just which stones Meg would choose to dance at. He laid in wait, hiding himself in the helm wind blowing off Crossfell, waiting for Meg to appear appear she did with her hundred followers it said they stripped down to their nakedness the sisters in a broad ring all about long meg who was covered in blood as red as her flowing hair she set about dancing calling the storms thanking the spirits for their service And her black hound was there, and the sisters were singing, but little did they know that in calling the storm, they called Michael Scott, who rode the helm wind right to them. When the old wizard appeared before the women, all gasped in horror, and though they roared and raged with the witches being of the air, Michael Scott laid down a curse of the earth, turning them all to stone. Though the daughters in the ring all mingled with the ancient rocks laid down by the druids and the men of old times, each transmuting to granite, Meg had a special fate. For her stone was red, red as her hair, red as the blood on her skin. And the hex Michael Scott laid on her was such that only a soul who could count all those stones in the ring three times round and come out with the same number would free long meg but the stones there well they move you see they're never in the same place twice which is how long meg and her daughters were trapped and still are sealed in rock forevermore Of course, everyone in Cumberland knows Long Meg's Hound still roams the hills and fells, watching and waiting and bringing the weather. And don't think Michael Scott got off scot-free, either. For, as Dante wrote in his Inferno, Michael Scott, the greatest wizard of his day, went to the devil, just as he always should have. After laying his hex, you see, Scott went back to Carlisle Cathedral and set himself down to pray. Only the Lord Bishop bade the wizard remove his skullcap while he knelt to ask for forgiveness. It just so happened that a loose stone from high above on the cathedral ceiling fell down and struck Michael Scott right on the top of his head. He was killed in the blink of an eye. And as an unholy man who died unshriven, his body was laid in an unmarked grave, its location a mystery to this day. And though Michael Scott is long dead, Long Meg and her daughters are far from it. For those old stones live and listen and learn, and one day some bright spark will count those rocks, and then Long Meg will be free. Well, Eleanor, what do you think? Long Meg and her daughters.
3: Can I just say that so many of my parties have been ruined by wizards turning up in that <laughs> way? There I am, standing stark naked, covered in blood, in the centre of a circle of my closest female friends. Some wizard. No, but really, I, I uh, was very struck by that image, as you can probably hear. Is the stone really red?
2: Yes. So wow. the outer stones of Long Meg and her daughters date from a different time to the central stone. So they're both really, really old. But Long Meg herself is a slightly different type of stone, thought to have been quarried more locally. And it is has a kind of red undertinge to it. So I thought That's I'd just so, develop that yeah, in the story. Yeah, what a
3: cool way to develop the legend. And I loved the idea of Meg's dog, which could control the weather.
2: <laughs> well, there's no reference at all to Long Meg having had a dog. But there's well, so many dog as legends. As in our discussion, there's, yeah. there's
3: quite a lot of dogs and beasts roaming the land. I thought it in too Cumbria. good to not
2: bring in. Definitely.
3: You know? And um, I've got to ask. Michael Scott, real person? Oh, yeah, real person. Was he actually mentioned in Fibonacci and Dante? Yeah, so people wow. people
2: think that he helped Fibonacci with his mathematics equations. So he used like this incredible polymath, legend of his day, um, real character, came from Scotland, travelled all throughout Europe, did this trick where he brought spirits out apparently from the underworld to serve dinner to royal families and he did this in several countries. So I mean either he's the most incredible charlatan or an actual wizard. So
0: this
3: (laughs) really interests me because I have done quite a lot of reading around Christopher Marlowe's play Doctor Faustus. The Faustian legend, but I've never come across Michael Scott. But that is you know in the B text of Faustus that's sort of exactly what he does he gets spirits to bring out dinner and grapes and whatever um, some uh, some rich aristocrat craves ah, very and interesting. it must have been taken from Michael Scott
2: and does Faustus also wear the steel skull cap or metal skull cap to protect himself from injury?
3: I've never seen a production where that's happened but I've got to say my mind went straight to the old film Excalibur oh, yeah. where Merlin wears steel skullcap the designers made that choice and i I wonder if that came from that legend it's probably
2: related but yeah so one of the interesting things about michael scott is he's associated with this long meg's daughter's uh legend he traveled all out all over europe he understood the rainbow double rainbow he kind of explained the mathematics behind how that that function yeah that's right yeah so 1100s 1200s um and then he disappears nobody knows where he ended up.
3: Oh, I love legends about wizards who disappear. I just assume that they're still around. Yeah, they've, they've got to be. discovered the Philosopher's stone <laughs> and they're still going. <laughs> just still rocking know. and rolling, yeah. Do we have any extant writings? Did Michael Scott Oh, yeah, there's writing? several texts wow. that survive. There
2: are some, some that are lost, but there are several books that still survive. And he was still read well into the Age of Enlightenment. So, yeah, Wow Michael Scott. Interesting guy.
3: I have got to find out more about him. Mm. You've inspired me. <laughs> How does he fit in with Paracelsus?
2: Oh well, of course they're all all rocking around. A similar sort of period of time. Yeah,
3: Paracelsus is a little bit later, isn't he? Yeah, I can't remember the exact dates. I think he's sort of thirteen hundreds, fourteen
2: hundreds. Anyway, so, oh, so Cumberland. I mean, guys, I could have talked about Cumberland folklore for, for much, much longer than I did, but I'm trying to keep under 52 minutes. <laughs> Eleanor, we need to talk about correspondence. Yes,
3: let that is turn over the hourglass. Oh, so
2: the first thing to say is we've been a bit quieter than normal on social media because we've not really been posting during our break. But still, thank you to everyone who has been getting stuck in on facebook.com forward slash 3 Podcast, Instagram at 3 Podcast, and on Twitter at... At three ravens pause.
3: Particular thanks to likers, commenters, and super sharers, Scott, Helen, James, Charlotte, Alex, Drew, and Philip on Facebook. And Paco, Grim Graves, Raven Goddess, SAM Richie and Dream Swarm on Twitter. And you'll be happy
2: to know we've had some more reviews. Oh, wonderful.
3: Thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to write one. It really, really helps the podcast be discovered by other people. It
2: sure does. Now, the first one is from PJ Scott who writes, I'm part of the David Crowther mentioned the Three Ravens spike. (laughs) Thank you, David. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so happy I listened to him. English folklore is a great addition to my history education. It adds another dimension to the story. So many new sites to visit on my next trip to the UK thank you for the suggestions
3: oh thanks PJ and please tag us in any photos you take of your visit to the exciting world of England (laughs) Uh, we also
2: have another one from Josie Smelko who writes I'm so glad I found this podcast it's the perfect blend of history folklore and storytelling the hosts are entertaining and interesting as an American who loves absolutely everything about the UK this podcast is exactly what I needed in my life
3: that's so lovely thanks
2: Josie as Eleanor said please if you can hop onto itunes apple podcast or your chosen podcast app and please please write us a review each one really does make a difference so eleanor where are we headed to next week
3: next week we are headed all the way down to england's southwest to the beautiful county of Dorset. oh one
2: of my favorites some of my family are from thrown there
3: as is most importantly to me thomas Hardy.
2: <laughs> well i'm expecting a wessex tale of wronged lovers tragedy and country people talking in the back rooms of pubs
3: and vampire ghosts oh, okay sounds amazing <laughs> well
2: until then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way
3: and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods
2: thanks and credit go to taffy thomas's book cumbrian folk tales the truly excellent esmerelda's cumbrian history and folklore blog and our friend on twitter folklorist and blogger Stephen g ray otherwise known as the bard of cumberland
3: our theme song is the traditional folk ballad three ravens performed by eleanor conlon and ben harbour and our logo was designed by ollie james dare
2: the three ravens podcast is a rust and stardust production written and produced by me martin Vaux. Thanks for listening.
3: God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such man With a down, derry, 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 down, down